0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at WNNN. Some of the stories we look at this week include the Uber IPO and what had, may have been the role of lack of compliance and ethics in the organization. Relying those who advocate a paper, paper compliance program, the government says you have to have a program which actually works. What's up with ephemeral messaging? What criteria should be used to make reparations to victims of corruption? Hong Kong criminally indicts ex-JP Morgan Banker in a Princeton case, Dan Kahn talks FCPA enforcement, um, Gongolia exiled McKinsey, what was that about, a federal judge lambasted the SEC, and what are the fraud risks for nonprofits. It's a fascinating week, which I know you will enjoy. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Uh, Jay, we had a lot going on this week, so why don't we just uh, jump right into it? We had a very, 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 very large, at, at the end of the day, disappointing IPO with uh, Uber. Uh, any uh, thoughts as to what role or lack thereof, culture compliance and ethics might have played in that IPO disappointment? Uh,
1: I think, uh, as Bugs Bunny used to say, could be, Doc. Um, yeah, this is one of uh, the big IPOs that the whole market was waiting for. And uh, normally, when these uh, they're usually priced to sell by the investment bankers, by the company. And uh, not only did uh, Uber fail to pop, but it actually went down the first day. And as uh, Uber has been one of our poster children for the past couple of years, and we've talked about everything from sexual harassment to um, internal investigations to bad hiring practices with its drivers. So I think that the market may have priced this in, or uh, it just maybe was also bad timing from Uber with Uber. everything that's happening in the world out there with the tensions in the Middle East, um, with uh, uh, issues about tariffs. So I think this was a, a bad time to come to market. But I think a lot of the investors out there are wondering, this is a cash flow negative business. And with the other problems that can be distracting management, uh, they rightfully might be wondering, is this company ever going to make any money? And for Furthermore, should they invest any of their hard-earned dollars into Uber? Uh,
0: so Jay, uh, absolutely agree with uh, all of the points you raised. Um, there was a great we, and we've linked to it. And the reason it's our number one uh, article today is uh, there's a great piece in the New York Times Deal Book that really took a look at all of the missteps Uber management made before, during, and after the IPO. One thing they really don't, I think, focus enough on is this issue of culture and compliance and ethics, and that what that has meant and uh, the lack of those things has done to the Uber workforce. So, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Uber. I always use them. Um, I support them, support what they're trying to do. Uh, so, I hope they'll uh, turn it around and, and and really get where they want to be, but um they really need to work on uh, on all of those things that you articulated.
1: So next up, Tom, uh, we have an article written by our colleague, Matt Kelly, that appears in the Navix global blog. And uh, Matt has uh, a crazy idea that according to the DOJ and OFAC, compliance function should actually work, not just exist. So what does Matt think?
0: So this was, huh, yeah, what a novel concept. Um, seems like that's something Mr. Monitors talks about on a, on a, on a demi-regular basis. Um, Matt took a look at the recently re- released Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs 2019 guidance and the recently released framework, frame rack, uh channeling my inner Bugs Bunny, wasquilly wabbit, um, Framework for OFAC Compliance Commitments. Uh, And really, he takes a look at these from the idea of what should an empowered compliance function look like. He looks at the CCO position, the authority of the CCO. He looks at the the larger compliance picture and says that the government is really moving or not moving because they have been there for quite some time, but restating paper compliance programs do not work. Uh, We don't want to see them. If you get in trouble and you've got a paper program, uh, you will be sanctioned for that. It's, it's about operationalizing compliance. It's about doing compliance. It's about having a compliance program, as Matt says in his title, quote, should actually work, end quote. So a great summary of those two recently released, uh, uh, guidances from the government, and every compliance practitioner needs to uh, take a look at those, Jay.
1: So next up, uh, we've got something that comes to us from the great New York University uh, corporate compliance blog. And this is an article from three attorneys at Davis Polk, Avi Gesser, Daniel Forster, and I'm going to butcher this one, sorry, Mengi Shu, And it's all about ephemeral messaging for business, balancing the risks of keeping and deleting data by default. And uh, earlier this week, Our good uh, friend Matt Ellis wrote an article specifically about ephemeral messaging and looking at uh, Latin America, where it's quite popular. Uh, In this piece, uh, the three attorneys say that one way for companies to decrease cybersecurity risks, as well as risks from new privacy regulation policies, such as GDPR, is through data minimization, significantly reducing the amount of data that they keep In this paper, they go and they talk about uh, business records versus disposable data, and then they make a further demarcation between primary and secondary communications. With primary communications, they may be emails or attachments, which are automatically preserved for a long period of time, And as a result, primary communications are the medium through which employees should communicate information that constitute business records. So if you get something that's a primary communication that comes off of an ephemeral device, At that point, you should switch the conversation back over to your company monitored email to preserve that as a business record, but anything that's secondary, you should delete. So um, this has been newsworthy because over the last couple weeks, there's been some uh, revisions to DOJ policy that talked about getting credit in terms of Self-reporting, and they basically lowered the hurdle a little bit in terms of the ephemeral messaging. But it's something that's still out there, and uh, we link to this article in the show notes.
0: Good stuff, Jay.
1: Okay, so uh, you're going to tell us what is Sam Hickey thinking about how to use criteria criteria to make reparations to victims of c- corruption.
0: So this has been a longstanding debate and question, Jay, about how or what should you do to make uh, reparations to victims of foreign bribery. Uh, The questions have turned on several different issues. Number one, if a country is notoriously corrupt, if you give um, compensation directly to the government, uh, they will probably just keep it. Uh, Because they're, by definition, corrupt, or at least reputationally wise, corrupt. Uh, If you don't give it to the government, who do you give it to? If it's uh, a a directly identifiable business competitor or business person, uh, then um, that's one mechanism where Mm -hmm. you can usually uh, have some success in at least identifying a recipient of reparations. But uh, what if the entire country is really defrauded? either through uh, allegations that they failed to get a fair price for selling off their mineral rights. They got shoddy construction of a road, of a building, uh, of a, some sort of infrastructure project. Uh, so that, that makes it um, difficult. The um, One of the me- methods that we have seen used is in Equatorial Gaudet, uh the money was to be distributed by a uh, triumvirate of people appointed by uh, the U.S. DOJ, the Equatorial Guinea government and uh, one jointly. Uh, as you might guess, the Equatorial Guinea government never appointed their person. So uh, kind of the system broke down, but the DOJ had, had backups in place uh, in the settlement agreement, a resolution agreement which specified that if uh, the Equatorial government That government continued to obfuscate, that it would devolve down to a recognized NGO. Uh, Now, the sanction, of course, is that the settlement is forfeited, uh, settlement agreement is forfeited, uh, and the monies are are used by the U.S. government. So, uh, there's several different ways to to look at this and to think about this. At this point, though, um, all of the resolutions have been ad hoc. And uh, many governments are still struggling, particularly the U.S. government and the U.K., but the Swiss, the Brazilian, you name the country that successfully or aggressively uh, enforces its anti-corruption laws of how to do so. And it's a question I think we'll see a continuing debate on, Jay, because as we move really to the next phase of worldwide anti-corruption enforcement, the uh, issue of reparations of the monies that were lost and or stolen uh, is going to become more to the fore.
1: Yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely see much more in this so to be continued. Um, next up, I've got something that comes from the uh, FCPA blog uh, from our good friend Richard Casson, who's then an editor-at-large there. And Hong Kong charges ex-JP Morgan banker in princeling bribery case. Uh, we've heard about several of these schemes over the last three to four years. And uh, Catherine Lung kar Chung, who uh, was a former Asia Investment Banking vice chair at J.P. Morgan, uh, has now faces two counts of bribery according to the independent commission against corruption, or the ICAC. Uh, She allegedly offered a job to the son of the chairman of a logistics company in 2010 and 2011, and the job offer was a reward for the chairman, quote, showing favor, unquote, to J.T. Morgan for his company's IPO. Uh, As I said, this falls on the heels of similar issues that Credit Suisse had in Hong Kong, that BNY Mellon had, and that Qualcomm did as well. So um, a former managing director of the investment bank was charged with bribing the chairman with an employment of the chairman's son for the chairman showing favor in placing the IPO. Uh, And around 2007, J.P. Morgan began to hire candidates referred by its clients or potential clients under the client referral program. So this, again, is something of value, giving a job, and in return for the job, getting the placement on an IPO. So uh, it's probably not the last one we've heard on that subject matter. Uh, next up, there was uh, another uh, gathering of the FCPA Glitterati in New York this week. And uh, what did Dan Kahn have to say about FCPA enforcement?
0: Well, there was a couple of different things Dan Kahn brought up. And for those who don't know, he heads the uh, FCPA unit over at the Department of Justice, Uh One uh, area of questioning was around the alleged business-friendly approach, I should say, quote, business-friendly approach, end quote, uh, that the Department of Justice has currently taken literally, or not literally, but really since the announcement of the 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, There were, if not criticisms or critiques, certainly questions around whether or not that was letting businesses off the hook too easily, and Dan Pointed out correctly that the corporate enforcement policy uh, had its genesis or a genesis in the 2016 FCPA pilot program, which was under the Obama administration. The only thing I would disagree with Dan on is that I think the roots go back to the 2012 guidance and that uh, the Department of Justice has uh, literally moved forward um, quite some time for quite some time uh, to come up with a really policy which gives tangible and significant, tangible, and definable benefits to a company that self-discloses. The Department of Justice sees companies as a partner in the worldwide fight against bribery and corruption, and um, frankly, it it may appear to be business light or business-friendly, but I think it's uh, something the department has really been moving towards for now seven years. Uh, The second thing was around the program, or uh, excuse me, the uh, decision uh, recently of the U.S. District Court in New York claiming that or finding that the Department of Justice had essentially outsourced its investigation to the internal investigation of a company, and the the, uh, uh, fallout continued from that. And Dan is uh, one of a series of Department of Justice speakers since that decision who have uh, attempted to claim that the department are tempted to say that the department is not direct investigations. So uh, clearly a, a PR campaign um, from the department on that point. But It was uh, interesting, uh, and like I said, the, the really the thing that I would disagree with Dan on is that uh, I saw the genesis of the 2017 corporate enforcement policy as far back as the 2012 guidance and going f- coming forward as recently as last month, Jay, when we had the release of the uh, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance.
1: So uh, basically, Tom, um, you're in agreement that the current uh, president's administration is not going soft on uh, FCPA violators because he probably doesn't even know what the FCPA is. Would you agree with that?
0: Well, I would say he probably can't spell FCPA.
1: <laughs> all right. Next up, we have a wonderful article that is um, coming to us from ProPublica, which is a nonprofit newsroom based in New York City. And it's all about the country that exiled McKinsey. And a dubious project raises serious questions about the world's most prestigious consulting firm, and it's work for corruption-plagued regimes. Uh, this goes back into 2010, where uh, there was a historic commodities boom in Mongolia, and uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, natural resources with coal and copper. And the Mongolian government decided that they needed to build a trans-Mongolian uh, railroad to be able to not only get these natural resources, but to sell it into the world's biggest economy in China. And McKinsey and & Company, the global consulting behemoth, was interested in participating in the project. In the fall of 2010, a gentleman named Jimmy Hexter, a senior partner at the firm, began talking with Mongolia's government about the railroad project. Operating there in Mongolia required caution uh, due to the normal red flags that uh, corruption was on the rise in Mongolia. And the State Department explained that U.S. enterprises needed to have measures in place to direct and prevent. Um, as you can uh, just only imagine, this uh, deal goes south really bad that they end up uh, not only partnering with a local presence in Mongolia, but this is somebody who was formerly of the government. And uh, one of my favorite parts is that the uh, gentleman who was running the corruption scheme evidently was a big fan of Francis Ford Coppola and the Godfather films. He took to wearing a Borsolino fedora and named his company Genco after the front olive oil company set up by Vito Corleone. So uh, it's a fascinating article. We link to it in the show notes. But uh, as usually does happen, it's nine years later. The railroad has not been built. And uh, the legacy that is left is just a pile of dirt.
0: Jay, the only thing I would add is – Uh, Ian McDougall, the reporter, also talked about the not the culture of McKinsey. He didn't really focus on that, but he focused on the structure of the company, and Mm -hmm. it's a partnership, and it has 2,100 partners, and it's incredibly uh, diffuse and diverse with individual partners having a large uh, amount of autonomy. And so he uh, he pointed that out in the context of uh, it's really difficult to have a Uh, centralized, coherent compliance program that's followed by everyone, when you have that sort of diffusion of power literally throughout the organization where you don't have a CEO, you have a managing partner, and that managing partner manages, he doesn't order. So uh, I thought that was interesting that uh, you could have a structural issue with your business entity, which could uh, lead to problems that we saw here on, um, uh, as reported by Ian McDougall.
1: So uh, next up, Tom, tell us how uh, Johnny-on-the-spot the the SEC is with charging Volkswagen.
0: So this was a really interesting article, Jay. It's a great, interesting lawsuit. Uh, The Securities and Exchange Commission in April sued Volkswagen, claiming that they had misled investors when they made certain bond offerings, uh, basically claiming they followed the law when obviously they didn't and weren't. As we found out in 2015 because of the emissions testing scandal. Uh, What the federal judge was uh, a little bit uh, askance with, Jay, was the lateness of the SEC bringing suit against Volkswagen. And um, as correctly noted, uh, this was public knowledge in September, excuse me, August 2015. The Department of Justice had brought uh, two years ago concluded a criminal matter with Volkswagen. And they have prosecuted individuals from Volkswagen. And the judge wanted to know why uh, the SEC took so long. And he, he entered an extraordinary order where he required the SEC to detail with an appropriate level of evidence the date, time, and manner of how they found out about each allegation they made in the federal complaint. Uh, Statute limitations, I think, is five years, so they could be within the five-year statute if the SEC didn't know about this until uh, it was publicly announced, but um, it it certainly uh, raises uh, some questions about why the uh, SEC waited so long uh, to bring this lawsuit. I don't know if that's going to be a complete legal defense to it going forward. But um, as the uh, the judge said, quote, my basic question is what took you so long, adding that he was, quote, totally mystified, end quote.
1: Yeah, good stuff there, Tom. Not so much. Uh, last up for this week, we have, have uh, something from our good friend Jonathan Marks out in Philadelphia, and he takes a look at violation of trust, fraud, risk in nonprofit organizations. And as Jonathan always does, it's uh, a very detailed study. And his main points are that. Nonprofit organizations—actually, let me back up for a sec. According to a 2018 global fraud study by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, ACFE, the typical organization loses an estimated 5% of its annual revenue to fraud. ACFE reported that private companies suffered the greatest medium loss. Of 164,000, an organization that had the smallest median median loss of 75,000. For some, 75,000 may be insignificant, but for many nonprofit organizations, financial resources are extremely limited, and a loss of 75000 dollars could be particularly devastating. Uh, he feels that nonprofits can be particularly attractive to targets for fraudsters because uh, exits executives are passionate about their agencies and their mission and are trusting of other people who share the interest. They also do lack resources and they do not necessarily have infrastructure and controls in there to prevent uh, bribery and fraud. So uh, in the article, Jonathan talks about anti-fraud principles and clear-cut actions that Uh, a nonprofit organization can follow to prevent uh, fraud and bribery. So it's a great article, and we link to it in the show notes. And, Tom, uh, why don't you uh, let our listeners know what was the uh, five-part podcast series that you had on last week?
0: Yeah, Jay, so last week I had a great podcast series with Don Stern, Managing Director of Affiliated Monitors on the Use of Monitors by Defense counsel. We uh, introduced the topic, and Don took a deep dive into the nuts and bolts. Uh, we had some great case studies that Don has been a part of. We looked at uh, working, uh, monitors working with defense counsel, excuse me, uh, defense counsel in the healthcare industry. And then finally, he turned to a topic you just raised, uh, nonprofits, and specifically Varsity Blues. So that's on everyone's mind, and how can a monitor help uh uh, universities and colleges, I think is going to be an important topic going forward. It's, the podcast is available on multiple sites, the FCPA compliance report, iTunes, JD super megaphone, YouTube, Spotify, corporate compliance insights hosts the entire oeuvre of the compliance podcast network. And of course, there's now the compliance podcast network site. So we've linked all of those in the show notes. Finally, Jay, so, uh, if I could just give uh, one last shout out for compliance week. I hope, uh, listeners, if you're on the fence, you will still uh, be able to join uh, join us at Compliance Week next week. You can still register with a discount using uh, Tom 300 for a $300 discount. Um, it's going to be a great conference. And uh, if you're on the fence at all, I hope you will uh, join us next week.
1: So uh, what are your predictions for the weekend, the man who does not gloat? Sweep. You got your broom out already? Got my broom out. Sweep. Okay. Well, do we need to have anything of value on the line here? Should we bet a dollar?
0: <laughs> I'll bet you my broom versus your broom.
1: Okay. So uh, when when do, when do you get out to to travel over the weekend or?
0: Uh, yes, and, and for even more incitement uh, incitement. <clears throat> incentives for people to come to Compliance Week. Uh, Myself and Jonathan Marks are putting on a workshop Sunday afternoon on uh, best practices and investigations and root cause analysis. So uh, for TOM300, you can get a $300 discount and you can join Jonathan Marks and myself in a three-hour workshop uh, Sunday afternoon. So I'm going to be getting in hopefully before that workshop starts, Jay.
1: Great. And then we look forward to uh hearing uh, your insights into the conference uh, next week when we wrap things up on our Memorial Day uh, edition of this week in the FCP. So I'm going to try something different. Would you like to take us home today?
0: Sure. For Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, this is Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and indeed the voice of compliance, signing off on This Week in FCPA for the week ending May 17, 2019, the Take It Back edition.
1: A.K.A. the Houston Sweep. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. As you can tell, the Astros are playing the Red Sox, and all I can say is go Astros. If you have any questions, you can email j at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we wrap up some of the stories that catch our collective eyes next week. This Week in FCPA, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.